Well, it is my privilege this morning to introduce Pastor Stephen Dewey. I've known Stephen for a while now, for a few years. Um, you may have noticed if you had looked through his information packet, he and I both attended the same school around the same time. In fact, my very first day of seminary, I ran into Stephen in the bookstore, and we struck a friendship from the very beginning. Now, unfortunately, we didn't have too many classes together, and we didn't have that much overlap whenever it came to our studies, because you're going to discover this morning, Stephen is a lot smarter than I am. Uh, he, uh, he graduated with honors. I came this close, like really close, but... Um, but just fell short of the mark. So um, I would like to, um, and by the way, Stephen is also a Washingtonian. He is a native from here. In fact, he spent a good portion of his childhood growing up on Camino Island. So he is one of you. I'm an import from, uh, from Indiana. So I realize there are times when I say things and do things that might not quite fit in, but Stephen should fit in very well here this morning in the pulpit. Thank you, Hans. Well, it is a joy to be with you folks this morning. It is great to be here, to see all of you, and uh, to finally be here. As uh, Hans mentioned, we did study together, and I taught him everything he knows in Hebrew, which he promptly forgot, but uh, no, we enjoyed some times together there as well and getting to know their family. My wife is in the back over here. We've got two children, Oliver, who's two, uh, almost two and a half, and Mabel is ten months, and it's a joy for all of us to be here this morning. I hope you get to meet them after the service. Uh, this morning we are in Isaiah chapter 42, so take your Bibles and turn there. We'll get there in just a moment. And I want to begin this morning by considering the human heart. The human heart. The human heart must worship something. It must worship something. We must have something that we hold dear, that we cherish, that we treasure, that we worship. It is impossible for the human heart to be empty. No heart is a barren desert, devoid of any desire and content in a state of solitude or a state of non-entity. The God-given makeup of our hearts is that we long for something. We, we crave something. And that if we achieve that something, which we typically do, we then indulge in that something and enjoy it. It is a scientific fact that nature abhors a vacuum. That is, nature cannot tolerate empty space. It will always fill it as quickly as possible. It's further fact that all cats abhor a vacuum, but that's for another sermon. <laughs> I recall visiting a, a science museum as a child. I can't remember where, and I saw a demonstration of a vacuum within a, a, a clear plastic cylinder. Inside the cylinder was a feather. Now the demonstrator turned the cylinder upside down, and the feather wavered through the air to the bottom of the cylinder, just as you'd expect. And my first thought is, this is a pretty lame demonstration. He then attached that cylinder to a uh, small machine which pulled all the air out of the tube, made it a vacuum, full of empty space. He then turned the cylinder over and, like lightning, the feather fell, top to bottom. I'll never forget how fast that feather fell through empty space. Then he then opened a small hole in the cylinder, and invisible air rushed back in. No machine needed. The empty space was unnatural and was quickly gone. The feather fell slowly again. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so does the human heart. So does the human heart. The heart cannot be empty. It must have its affection set on something. 
God designed it this way. Prior to man's fall into sin in Genesis 3, the heart affections of Adam and Eve were set fully on their creator, fully upon their God. He was their full desire, their true joy, their greatest and all-surpassing love. But with their fall into sin, all mankind now finds their hearts set on thousands of lesser things. The glory of God that our hearts were designed to treasure and to revel in has been replaced by the cheap and failing glories of this world. We will fill the void in our hearts with lesser and often debased things. And this, this is the sinful human condition, worshiping objects that we ought not to worship, treasuring things that we ought not to treasure. Our affections, our desires, our lusts, they fill our hearts and we go after these things. Eventually, they no longer satisfy, and our hearts find a new desire, and so we go after that. Consider a person who has recently retired from a profession, whether it be business, law, medicine, machinery, or the field. The object of their work for for so many years is now gone from them. It's now gone from them, and they find within themselves a restlessness they could never imagine. Watching John Wayne westerns and Star Trek reruns all day just doesn't cut it for very long. Right? They need something to fill their time, something to pursue, something to satisfy, take their interest. Many will take up golf or fishing or rotary clubs or, or something of that, something to fascinate the heart and mind. Empty hearts need something to worship. Friends, our hearts were not designed to be empty. In fact, they cannot be empty for long or we would give in to total despair. And the crucial question for us this morning What's in your heart right now? What are you worshiping? Do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What else is your heart living for today? What are you devoting your attention to? What are you giving the bulk of your time or the bulk of your thoughts? What does your imagination pursue? What do you strongly desire, even lust after? Any of these things can be objects of worship for you. All of these things could be idols of your heart. Or is there a sin that you're constantly struggling with? Is there a spiritual battle within you that you are not winning? Is there a desire you have that you know is not from God, but you just can't seem to put it aside? Friend, you cannot just remove the sin or that wrong object of worship. That only leaves a void in your heart. That only leaves a vacuum. You must replace it with something better. You must replace it with something better. This is a universal rule. The surest way to turn the heart away from one object is to present to it another object even more alluring. Puritan Thomas Chalmers, from whom I've drawn much of what I've said this far, calls this maxim the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Big word, right? Expulsive. Good Puritan word. It means to pull out, remove, expel. Only a new affection can remove that which a heart currently craves. Friend, you will never overcome that sin, win that battle, or set aside that desire if you do not replace it with something new and something better. Friend, fill your heart with Jesus Christ. 
He is the superior affection that you need. It was Augustine that said, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so this morning, may God divinely help our restless hearts find their greatest affection in Jesus Christ. May we be enabled by his grace to treasure Jesus Christ so that you long for and worship him alone. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 7 is our text. Turn there if you're not already there, and I will read all seven verses. Follow along with me in Isaiah 42, 1 to 7 as I read. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeons, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we unpack this magnificent text. Father God, we come before you humbly this morning as your servants, Lord, as your sheep. May you speak to us, God. May you set our minds on Jesus Christ. Give us this new desire. Help us to treasure him, Lord God, above all earthly things. Open our eyes from from your word, God, to see him in a new light. It's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We will spend most of our time this morning in the first four verses. Three of our four points come from that, and we'll cover verses five to seven in our last point. But before we dive in, I need to set the context for you. The context for this passage truly matters. It makes a a very big difference. And it's linked back to beginning in verse 21 of chapter 41. Verse 21 of chapter 41. Now, if you've read your Old Testament at all, you can probably guess right away, one of Israel's greatest sin problems. One of Israel's greatest sin problems. It's idolatry. Idolatry. These people were incredible at how fast they could forsake their God. And so at the end of chapter 41, God makes his case for how foolish it is for his people to worship and trust these idols. Let's read a handful of these verses leading up to our text. Look back to verse 21. I'll read Isaiah 41, 21 to 24. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Verse 22, let them, now he's referring to the false gods of worship, that's the them, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do evil, or do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. God says to Israel here, look, your idols, they are worthless. They cannot tell the future like I can. 
they can't do anything. They can't do good or evil. They're totally worthless. So now let's skip down to verse 28 and, and as the Lord continues here. Verse 28 of chapter 41. God says, But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them, who, if I ask, can give an answer. In other words, God is saying there's no false god that responds. There's no idol that can answer him if he asks them a question. Their false gods know nothing. And so verse 29, Behold, all of them are false their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. <clears throat> That's what God thinks of their idols that Israel worships and treasures. They are false. They are worthless. They are empty as the wind. Our society today in America <clears throat> is just as good at idolatry as these Israelites were. We just don't make little idols and put them in front of our cell phones to worship them, or in front of our Instagram accounts, or our perfect families, or or our jobs, or our hobbies, or our bank accounts, or our popularity. We don't sacrifice animals to these things, but we sure do sacrifice our time, our energy, and our emotions. We're a nation of idolaters as well. And so God looks at us, and he looks at Israel, and he says to us, the things of this world, they are false. They are worthless. They are not deserving of your worship. So let me show you something better. Let me show you something that is worthy of your greatest affections. You need the expulsive power of a new affection. And that's exactly what God has given us in this text as we see the servant. Look at how it begins. Behold my servant. This is your new affection. Set your heart on this servant. We must treasure Jesus Christ so that we long for and worship him alone. This morning we're going to see four priceless treasures that set Jesus far above all objects of worship. Four priceless treasures. The first of these priceless treasures is the servant's might. The servant's might. If you've got your outline there, I think there's some blanks for you to fill in. The servant's might from verse 1. We first treasure Jesus for his might. But as we'll see, it's not his own might, but it's a might that has been given to him by his maker. Simply consider how he's introduced. Behold, my servant. Though Isaiah is writing, we know God is the one speaking. This is God's servant, my servant. Not just any old servant. Take notice, everyone. God is going to use this servant. He's at the beck and call of his master, Yahweh. God of gods, the Lord of lords. Now, some have tried to paint this servant as the nation Israel. Indeed, Israel is often called the servant of God. In fact, later in chapter 22, it's very clear when God uses the term servant that it is being applied to Israel. So it's not out of the question. Elsewhere in Scripture, God calls Abraham, Moses, David, even Nebuchadnezzar his servant. So God's not limited to who he can call his servant. But as we move through our text this morning, it will become overwhelmingly clear that this servant is Jesus Christ. And to set the case in stone, the Apostle Matthew applies this passage straight to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, 18 to 21. So we know who we're dealing with here. This is Jesus Christ. And this Jesus that we know is called a servant. Like the word bondservant in the New Testament, this word could rightly be translated as slave. Slave. He's not a for-hire employee He's a slave for life. 
Now, that's not your typical picture of might, is it? But he's God's slave, sent to do God's will. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7 instruct us that although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. He let go of his special status in heaven in full and perfect communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and came down to earth to do the will of God. Just consider what he told his disciples in John 5.30. He said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And just that amount of willpower right there needed to submit to such a humble mission shows the internal might of Jesus alone. And what a picture we have of this man, this servant already. We've barely scratched the surface. God then declares in the latter part of this very first line that he will uphold his servant. This is a strong word in Hebrew, meaning to grip fast, to hold tight. And later on in verse 6, if you skip down to there and take a peek, God reaffirms his protective upholding. In the middle, he says, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. The servant of God would be protected by the mighty power of God as he ministered among us. God had a plan for this servant and it would not falter. Consider how right at the start of his ministry, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus preached a powerful, convicting sermon from this same book, from the scroll of Isaiah. But it was not well received by the crowd. At the end of this powerful sermon, quote, all the people were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city. They took him to a cliff in order to throw him off. But passing through their midst, he went away. What? One man against an angry mob? They wanted to kill him. And somehow he just slipped out. God upheld him. Consider the time in John 7 when he went to the Feast of Booths. His preaching again angered the religious leaders. And this time they sent officers, the Jewish police, police, to arrest him, to arrest Jesus. After some time, the officers returned empty-handed. Why did you not bring him? They were asked, never has a man spoken in this way. Friends, Jesus was bulletproof. He was divinely upheld and protected by God until the appointed time of his sacrificial death. The mighty hand of God was upon him. He upheld his servant. But this is not all that God would do for his servant. Look back at at verse 1. He says, my servant whom I might hold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. We see God, not only that he upholds him, but he's chosen him, he dearly loves him, and he gives him his spirit. Throughout eternity past, God the Trinity has been in perfect, unbroken relationship with the three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They live together in a perfect love. And it's hard to consider this, this passage that we're in where we see God speaking of the love he has for his son and the indwelling of the spirit without considering the baptism that took place of Jesus in the Jordan River. I want you to turn there with me. Keep your finger in Isaiah. Turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew three sixteen and 17. I want to wade into the Jordan River with you for a moment and see this event afresh. Just picture it. We're up to our knees as we crane our necks to see his baptism. 
And I'm certain that this chapter would have been on the minds of any devout Jew, any well-studied Jew, Isaiah 42. Matthew 3, 16 to 17 says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Standing in the river that day, we hear the pleasure of God pronounced upon his Son. His soul delights in this servant. And if we had looked up to hear who spoke, we would have seen the Holy Spirit coming down gently as a dove. Now my son Oliver, my two-year-old son Oliver, he's fascinated with birds. He just loves to watch them, looking out our back porch window, seeing the birds. You saw him as we're coming up through uh, Marysville today. And he's got his own special word for them that he's made up. It, this word is giddles. Don't ask me how he got that. Giddles. One of the many picture story Bibles in our home displays this grand scene of Jesus' baptism. Only instead of the Holy Spirit coming down, it says, a dove came down from heaven. Giddle, giddle, giddle! Ollie points to it with an excitement in his voice. One day I'll have to sadly burst Oliver's bubble, but there was no dove. There was no dove. A dove was simply Matthew's illustration of the gentle, visible, and shocking descent of the Spirit of God coming down from Father God to indwell the Son of God. And I'm sorry if I've just burst your own bubble as well. Now, why is this important? Why, why am I highlighting this? Because this was not a secret endowment or a desert rendezvous. The Spirit visibly and publicly settled upon the Son, Jesus Christ. Just as Isaiah 42.1 says, I have put my Spirit upon him. God wanted this to be seen. The Holy Spirit came upon the servant that day, and this was incredibly important. Before the Spirit came upon him, Jesus did no ministry, not a single miracle, not a single sermon, not a single disciple. But with the empowering might of the Holy Spirit, he was unstoppable. Demons were subject to him. The wind and sea were submitted to him. The dead were raised by him. The servant of God was filled with the mighty power of God to do all the mighty works God had planned. What a superior being this is to those lifeless idols, to those powerless idols that Israel worshipped and that we tend to worship as well. No idol or object of worship in your life has a lick of power. All might has been given to the servant. And with this might, he will press forward to accomplish his divine mission. That's the second priceless treasure, the servant's mission. The servant's mission. Operation Market Garden was billed as the mission to end World War II. Having been successful on the beaches of Normandy and beating back the Nazis from France, there was great enthusiasm among the Allied forces. Operation Market Garden aimed to end World War II by the fall of 1944. The plan was bold, daring, aggressive. 35,000 paratroopers, the largest drop in the history of mankind, even to this day, would be flown in behind enemy lines. These paratrooper soldiers would capture several bridges along one main highway and make a path for the foot soldiers and artillery to storm deep into Germany and right to Berlin. The mission was clear. 
a simple and fast penetration behind enemy lines. And if successful, the war would shortly be over as the Allied forces would destroy the Nazis' production factories and soon capture Hitler. The mission was clear. The mission was followed. But the mission was failed. Those paratroopers were unable to capture the last bridge along the attack route. And so when the ground forces arrived, the Nazis still held the bridge. And the war would last in another entire year. Here within verses 1 to 4, we see the servant's mission. It's very clear. But we're also told that he will succeed. He will not fail. The mission is the main theme of verses 1 to 4. It's repeated three times in this section. We'll be pulling our outline from it. It's not your traditional point where you just go straight down. We'll pull from the end of verse 1. If you look at the end of verse 1, it says, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Then the end of verse 3, we get our second mission statement. It says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now roll right into verse 4. The third is found here. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And we, will told, we are told that he will do this faithfully, that he will not quit, he will not be disheartened, he will not be crushed until this mission succeeds. God will uphold him, guide him, and strengthen him all the way to completion so that Jesus can say, mission accomplished. He will not fail. And this mission is why God sent Jesus Christ, his servant, to the earth. This is his mission, to bring forth justice to the nations. Now, what exactly does that mean? What exactly is that? Well, it all hangs on one word translated here in the NASB as justice. Justice. Now, there's no word in English that can do the Hebrew word justice, justice. The word in Hebrew is mishpat. Mishpat, not to be confused with mosh pit, that dangerous area at the front of concerts, the front of rock concerts. Mishpat is a big term with 13 distinct but related meanings in the Hebrew. And the central idea is justice, hence the the translation here. One of the common meanings is that of judgment, such as what is handed down in a court case. The judge makes his judgment on the case. Another common meaning, however, though, is this concept of sovereign government. One that has the authority to rule. Kings are given authority to rule and establish justice in their domain. They are to bring judicial order to the land. And this is most certainly the meaning of mishpat in our text. A judicial order over the realm of one's authority. And as our text states, Jesus' realm is over all the nations and all the earth. His realm is the whole world and everything in it. And so the mission of the servant is to establish judicial order and reign over the entire world. This will be a universal kingdom with a universal king. The servant's mission is to be king of the world. That's why God sent his servant. This mission is huge. It's so huge, in fact, that as we now know, the servant would come twice. The servant would come twice. In Jesus' first coming, he conquered the reign of sin and death by dying on a cross and rising from a grave. Step one of the mission is complete. Christ's first coming made this reign 
as future reign possible, his second coming will make it actual. And today we live in the in-between, waiting for the kingdom of God to come and for Christ to establish his righteous rule across planet Earth. In the meantime, Christ rules in our hearts. He rules in our hearts, in the hearts of those who have put their trust in him. In his first coming, he brought salvation through his sacrificial death. The just sentence of eternal death and separation from God that you and I deserve, that our sins deserve, was taken by the servant upon that cross. He dies in your place. He takes the justice you deserve. And having brought to you salvation, he now reigns over your life. And when he returns at his second coming, he will establish his just reign over the entire earth. Isaiah 32, 16 to 18 gives us a small glimpse of this world of Jesus' justice. Just listen as I read Isaiah 32, 16 to 18. Then justice, that's our word mishpat again, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, i.e. it'll be everywhere. This justice will be everywhere. Verse 17, and the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. This is his mission. This is what the servant has come to do, to reign and rule over planet earth, to faithfully establish justice in the earth so we we can worship God forever in peace. Friends, Jesus alone is worthy of your worship. He alone should be treasured in your heart. Will you submit to him today? Will you cast aside your vain objects of worship and treasure Christ today? By his might and his mission alone, we have an object worthy of worship. But I believe it's his methods that will really draw you to him. The third priceless treasure is the servant's methods. The servant's methods. Consider how, just how this sovereign servant rules. Look with me again at verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You see, Jesus did something unthinkable for a man with incredible might and on an incredible mission. As verse 2 says, according to the will of God, he was quiet, unaggressive, humble, in his ministry. If there was ever a man who could brag or boast about who he was or what he was doing, it was Jesus Christ, right? And yet he says nothing to get attention. He says nothing to promote himself. He will not put up billboards. He will not self-advertise at all. How such an attitude flies in the face of conventional Christianity today, conventional evangelicalism. Even among so-called spiritual leaders, it is all about making a name for yourself so your message can be heard. Have you ever seen a book by Joel Osteen or Creflo Dollar or the like that does not have their picture on the cover? No, I even Googled it. Every single book by Joel Osteen has his face on the cover. How else do you advance your name if you don't advance yourself? But not so with Jesus. As our Bible says, he would not make his voice heard in the streets. Did he ever go about proclaiming, here I am, the Son of God, look here, follow me? No, never. This self-effacement was integral 
to his earthly ministry. Jesus was in fact constantly telling people to be quiet about him and his abilities. Whenever a demon would come out or proclaim him as the Holy One, the Son of God, Jesus would command him to be silent, say no more. And when he healed people, he was often commanding them to tell no one, to stay quiet, to not make him known. Matthew 12, 16 and 17 tells us that after he had healed many people, quote, he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, my servant. And then he quotes our first four verses here. Jesus came humbly and he came quietly. Unlike other rulers who self-advertise and push their way to power, Jesus did the opposite. Came humble and quiet. And I must apply this to our lives at this point. The more I will humble myself and lower myself before other people, the more God will uphold me and support me. But the more I do my own thing and seek my own way, the less God will support me. I will be flying blind in my own strength. Friend, your goal is not to be known and heard. Don't raise your voice in the street or on Twitter. Humbly serve the Lord to the best of your ability wherever he has placed you. This is the method of the servant of God. May this be our method as well. But there's another, another method of the servant. He is soft and tender. And if this won't melt your heart to love the Savior, I don't think anything will. Verse 3 says, He will not break a bruised reed. This is a useless, bent-over reed, bent and nearly broken. The pictures of a person weighed down by the sorrows of life, bent over with the sorrow of their circumstances. Jesus cares even for them. He will hold them gently, tenderly. He will hold you in his hands, even in the greatest of sorrow. A typical leader unknowingly or even purposely crushes the bruised reed on his path to power. But not so our king, not King Jesus. The sovereign ruler of the universe will care for the broken, those carrying the pains of life within their heart. Friend, he knows what you're going through right now. He knows the trials in your heart that I don't know, that none of us know. And he loves you. And he will care for you gently. So cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Cast your cares on him. Now like with those weighed down by sorrow, he also tenderly cherishes those who have been burnt out by the shame of their own sins. Our text promises us in verse 3 that a dimly burning wick he will not quench. This, I believe, is the Christian weighed down by much sin whose faith burns so low. Like a candle about to go out whose flame of faith is so dim that the slightest zephyr, the softest breeze will snuff it out. Struggling Christian, if that is you, Christ will cup his hands around you and protect you from the wind. Though there is but a spark in your heart, that spark is has been placed there by him. And what he has set aflame, he will by no means put out. Friend, he knows your sin. He knows the the sin that presses on your heart, even now seeking to persuade you that I must not be a true follower of Christ. Though your life, even as a Christian, may be marred by great sin, Jesus will not let you go. His grace is greater than all your sin. 
Just as a small pearl is of great value, so a small flame of faith is as well. Jesus will not let you go. Rest assured, he who began a good work in you will complete it. So cast off the sin that you now treasure and treasure the priceless Savior. Do you see the warmth and love of our Savior? Do not his methods draw you to his heart? Such, such methods are unheard of in this world, but they are exactly what this world needs. The outer reaches of the world are waiting to hear of this love and grace. The end of verse 4, it finishes, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. This is the servant's law. This is not the law of Moses. This is the law of Jesus Christ. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. The law of Moses can only condemn. The law of Christ saves. And there are billions of people in this world today dying to hear such a message. Arlington needs this message. Snohomish County needs this message. So treasure what you have in Christ and share this treasure with the world. Treasure what you have in Christ and share it with the world. That's the application here at the end of verse 4. Now we've seen Jesus might. We've learned of his mission. We've felt in our soul his methods. And we've only briefly got left to see his ministry. His ministry and what a ministry it is. Priceless treasure number four, the servant's ministry, verses five to seven. Let's go ahead and reread verses five to seven as we approach this section of our text. Verse five. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you and will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Back to verse 5. Here we see God stretching out the heavens and spreading out the earth. The picture is one of spreading out a bedsheet or a tablecloth, flattening it from its wrinkles to perfection. God created a perfect world. At the end of verse 5, it says that he gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God gives you your very breath that sustains you. You are fully dependent upon this God. Now compare that for just a moment to the idols in our lives, to the idols of Israel. Right? We create and fashion these idols ourselves. And then they are dependent upon us for life. That's the very opposite of this creator God who creates you and sustains you. This far superior God is the God who sends his servant now to minister to you. He gives you life and he gives you a savior. Praise him. And then in verse 6, God the Father now speaks to Jesus the servant. We get to eavesdrop on this inter-Trinitarian conversation. First, God has called him in righteousness. He is a righteous servant, and God has a righteous purpose for him on earth. He will bring righteousness to God's people. His entire ministry is bathed in righteousness. The next God states, as we considered earlier, that he, will, uh, that he will hold him by the hand and watch over him. He's essentially saying, my son, I will protect you in this sinful, dangerous world to which you go. And then at the end of verse 6, he says, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Here we have his ministry. This is Jesus' ministry. 
starts out, I will appoint you as a covenant. This is the new covenant. Jesus became the mediator of the new covenant between holy God and sinful man. He became the new mediator between, of the new covenant between holy God and sinful man. God appointed him. This was God's forever plan. Jesus was our representative, cutting a covenant with God through his own blood, and by which we have been reconciled to God through his death on the cross. Every time we take communion, every time you as a congregation take communion, we remember and partake of this covenant. Matthew 26, 27, Jesus says, This is, the, is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. He's the covenant, and he's also the light. He came to open blind eyes, the verse tells us, both physically and spiritually. But there's a spiritual emphasis to this text, I believe. Men and women are spiritually blind to the truth. Because of our sin, we rot in spiritual dungeons, shackled deep in prisons of darkness. The devil in this world works so hard to keep you locked away, keep you enslaved in your lusts and sins. They want you to think that this is all there is to life. They do not want us to find a new and better affection. But Jesus is the light that bursts in, exposing our sin for what it is and offering us an exit, an escape from our dungeons. John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the ministry of the servant. He is the covenant and the light. This is salvation. Jesus has come to bring salvation to the world. This is what he has done for us, friends. We did not need a browbeating. We needed a savior. We did not need a lecture. We needed a light. We needed someone to remove the heavy guilt of sin from our trembling shoulders and pour peace into our trembling hearts and to say to us, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. His mission is to one day rule the world. But his ministry is to bring millions of worshipers along with him. To bring you with him. Are you living all out for the Savior? Have you treasured him above all worldly things? Or are your eyes still blind to the truth? Do you sit in the dungeons of sin, a prisoner in your own soul? Friends, do you need another piece of evidence? Well, God gives it to you. Look at verses 8 and 9. These verses conclude our greater section of Scripture, reaching back to the theme of idolatry in chapter 41, verse 8 and 9. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. In verse 9, these former things, they speak to prophecies that he had already fulfilled, verifiably fulfilled. And now I declare new things speaks to the new prophecies he's just laid down about the servant. Everything we've considered this morning was a prophecy. Every little detail about Jesus that we've considered this morning was written 700 years before Christ walked on earth. With diamond point accuracy, God foretold these things about Jesus. What more evidence could you need? What more evidence could you need Only the one true God has such power.
And he has given all that power to his son to save the world from their sins. That's Jesus' ministry. Maybe you're here this morning to check out this church thing. See what Christianity is all about. Or maybe you've been in church for years and you've always thought fondly of Jesus, but you've never forsaken the world. Friend, whatever your position, if you have not repented of your sin and turned to Jesus in faith for salvation, you are still shackled in those dungeons. Your eyes are still blind to the truth, treasuring worthless things. But friend, the servant of God has been sent to earth. And as verse 7 tells us, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners out of their dungeons. Jesus calls you to be saved. He offers you forgiveness from your sins and complete pardon. Friend, get up. He has opened the door of the dungeon. Walk out by faith and receive salvation. This moment, his blood will wash you clean. Turn to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Worship Jesus. Trade your rags for true riches. Trade your idols for the servant. Everyone, our hearts must worship something. There is no better object of worship in all the universe than Jesus Christ. Treasure the servant of God. Whatever you've been living for, it's time to replace it for good with Jesus Christ. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Let's pray. God, your word reveals your son, your perfect servant, who has done what we could never do, reconciled sinful man to holy God. God, we are in awe of you and this plan and this servant who so humbly came and gave up his life on the cross, taking it back three days later when he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. Lord, it's by his blood, it's through this covenant, it's with his light that we come to know you. God, may we all walk from this building in a personal relationship with you this morning. And may Christians, Lord, may we believers here have a deeper love for you and a greater focus on you to worship you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.